Welcome, friends, to our exploration of the three kingdoms and the rich tapestry of history they represent. I'm Aubrey, and with me is Ryota, and through this series, we will attempt to unravel the entwined narratives and complexities of this remarkable epoch. Exactly, Aubrey. But before we unravel, let's place everything in their historical context. The Romance of the Three Kingdoms is not just a fascinating legend, but a record of a real period in Chinese history, roughly from 184 to 280 AD. That long ago, I'm sure it must have been a drastically different society then. Indeed. The society was marred by socio-political instability and a civil uprising, which paved way for an interesting timeline of events to unfold. And that, I presume, led to the formation of the Three Kingdoms? Yes, Aubrey. The Han Dynasty's fall gave birth to a vacuum of power. In this chaotic period, three prominent states rose, Wei, Shu, and Wu, collectively referred to as the Three Kingdoms. It's really like the plot of a historical drama, isn't it? In a way, yes. There was a lot of political manipulation, strategic alliances, and civil unrest. It is a gripping narrative, after all. The struggle for power and an aspiration to unite a fragmented nation form the essence of this historical period. A plotline rife with intrigue and power play. That does make for a compelling narrative. Quite the turbulent timeline indeed, Ryota. It's fascinating to delve into the socio-political environment that led to the birth of the Three Kingdoms. If we look at the geopolitical landscape of these Three Kingdoms, we notice the strategic locations they held. Indeed, Aubrey. Geographically, Wei, Shu, and Wu were strategically positioned between two rivers, the Yellow River and the Yangtze River. Is that right? Precisely, Ryota. This positioning allowed them to control an immense catchment area, which served as an economic and political asset. Furthermore, the geographical barriers like mountains and rivers provided natural defense against invasions. So, the geographical advantage can be considered as one factor that contributed to their formation and sustenance. Absolutely. The fact that these kingdoms managed to thrive in such strategic locations sheds light on their active engagement with the geopolitical landscape. It is also important to note the governing system during this era. It was largely feudal in nature, right, Ryota? Yes, Aubrey. The fiefs were governed by a network of feudal lords who owed their allegiance to the king. This administrative setup definitely played a key role in shaping the socio-political dynamics of the era. Overall, the socio-political landscape played a significant role in the formation and progression of the three kingdoms, providing a unique framework for this momentous period. The emergence of these three kingdoms wasn't an overnight phenomena. Their conception was eventual, a product of several contributory factors. That's true, Ryota. Why don't we delve a bit into that? Can you provide our listeners with an overview of the significant political factors involved? Certainly, Aubrey. The Han Empire, ever ripe with internal conflict, saw a decline in centralized power resulting in the rise of regional warlords. This gave way for the formation of Wei, Shu, and Wu. So these kingdoms essentially emerged from the ashes of a collapsing empire. That's an engaging way to put it, Aubrey. In essence, yes. It seems that social circumstances also played a crucial part in the establishment of these kingdoms. Could you elaborate on that, Ryota? Yes, the social factor was certainly vivid. The Han Empire's fall brought about a power vacuum, 
Various social classes, particularly the aristocracy and powerful families, seized the opportunity to extend their influence and authority. Even the peasantry found themselves with a role to play in these turbulent times, right? Yes, unending conflict and disorder led to uprisings and rebellions, most notably the Yellow Turban Rebellion led by the peasantry devastated by famine and disease. These events further destabilized the Han Empire, paving the path for the emergence of the Three Kingdoms. The rise of the Three Kingdoms thus appears to be heavily intertwined with the downfall of the Han Empire. Their emergence from chaos to order indeed forms an interesting chapter in history. Absolutely, Aubrey. The era of the Three Kingdoms is a testament to the dynamic nature of history itself. It's time to navigate the turbulent peace that marked the kingdom's coexistence. A lot of what transpired during this peace can be credited to the key restraint and moderation exhibited by the Three Kingdoms. It seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? You wouldn't generally associate turbulence with peace. So, in what ways was this peace turbulent? That's an insightful point, Aubrey. While peace conventionally suggests an absence of conflict, this era of peace was marked by constant political maneuvering, diplomatic subterfuge, and small-scale skirmishes. These Julian relations between the kingdoms must have sparked constant anxiety. It's difficult to imagine, maintaining peace while always prepared for the next attack. Spot on, Aubrey. The anxiety of an impending war constantly hung over the three kingdoms. Yet there were significant measures in place that maintained this balance. For instance, strategic military reeds, intertwined alliances, and clever diplomatic overtures kept full-scale wars at bay and created a state of forced coexistence among Wei, Shu, and Wu. So in a way, their survival depended on this fragile peace. The prospect of a mutual destruction forced them into maintaining this uneasy tranquility. Indeed, survival was the bottom line. This tumultuous period showcases political realpolitik in its rawest form, where survival and power dictated the dynamics between Wei, Shu, and Wu. It was an era where strategic minds prevailed and adaptability was key to survival. Speaking of survival, we should discuss the administrative hierarchy in place within each kingdom. Despite the continued anxiety of conflict, the three kingdoms were able to develop remarkably structured forms of governance. Yes. It's important to remember that maintaining a kingdom wasn't just about war and alliances. It was equally about managing internal affairs, ensuring order and prosperity within one's kingdom to meet people's needs. Precisely so, Aubrey. A fundamental aspect of the administration during this era was the implementation of a detailed hierarchical system. From the emperor at the top, to regional governors, then to district officials, and further down to local village leaders, every level had its role to play. That sounds like an elaborate structure. Specifically, how did they ensure efficient governance with such detailed hierarchy? The key lay in delegation and responsibility, Aubrey. The emperor was the supreme authority, and his court advised him on various matters. The regional governors and district officials executed political directives and maintained law and order. They were the connection between the court and the common people. Now, the village leaders were integral, as they directly handled people's necessities and grievances. So, in a sense, everyone had a role and responsibility that contributed to the overall administration.
This approach seems to cater effectively to the different dynamics within the region. Yes, the diverse needs of each region were catered through a chain of control and responsibility. It ensured the kingdom could function smoothly amidst the overarching tension of the potential conflict. Now that we've understood the hierarchy, let's move to another significant aspect. Strategic planning and how it contributed to the prosperity of these kingdoms. Indeed, strategic planning, it's more than just scheming war strategies. Absolutely, Ryota. From land cultivation to leveraging regional advantages, every detail played a crucial role. The bountiful lands of these kingdoms were not just a product of natural circumstances. Ah. So, a combination of effective agricultural practices and strategic planning helped maintain the prosperity? Exactly, Ryota. Innovative agricultural techniques and irrigation systems were implemented diligently. Canals were built to ensure effective water supply, and specific crops were grown based on the characteristics of the region. It was about finding a balance between needs and resources. That must have required significant foresight and understanding of each region's topography. Certainly. And beyond agriculture, the kingdoms were also attuned to their unique geographic advantages. For instance, the strategic positioning of trading routes, or the establishment of defensive fortresses on hilly terrains. Even the disadvantages were turned into opportunities. Fascinating that they could convert their challenges into prospects. Absolutely, it made them resilient and adaptable. And it's these aspects of strategic planning and maximizing the resources that lent to the prosperity of the kingdoms amidst often chaotic circumstances. Now that we have insights into strategic planning and prosperity, I'd like to steer our discussion towards the cultural aspects and lifestyle within the three kingdoms. Certainly, Ryota. The social fabric indeed provides a unique perspective. A civilization's culture humanizes them beyond political and military tactics. And these three kingdoms, despite their commonalities, had their distinct cultural identities, didn't they? Yes, they did. Be it the arts, academia, or their societal norms, they differed vastly. Indeed. With the Wei Kingdom, there was an emphasis on literature and education. I read the Jin scholars focused on literature and Confucian studies, effectively setting a precedent for future dynasties. Interesting. And the Shu Kingdom? Ah, the Shu Kingdom. That was the land of music and arts. Kongming Lanterns one of the splendid inventions from this time, symbolized hope and good fortune. Also, the renowned face-changing opera has its roots here. The variety is captivating. And the Wu? The Wu kingdom was more marine-oriented. Their folk songs and fish-scaled armor, not only distinct, but also held a strategic advantage. Much of their culture derived from their geographic location, and thus, maritime heritage is prominent in their legacy. These cultural nuances bring the kingdoms to life. No longer are they mere political entities. Very true. It reminds us that beyond the palace intrigue and battles, there were people living, creating, learning, in their unique ways. A shift of sorts. Let's delve into the essential component of these kingdoms' power, their military strength. Wouldn't you say the core strength was in their armed forces, Aubrey? Oh, definitely. It was a time when a kingdom's prowess and influence were directly proportional to its military might. Indeed. The Wei Kingdom, the northern giant, 
known for their disciplined infantry and advanced weaponry, it is said they had lance-wielding crossbowmen, a combination of long-range and close-combat techniques. So, a tactical advantage through their choice of weaponry. And Shu Kingdom? Their strength lay in their geography, mountainous terrain, providing natural barricades against invaders, particularly effective where traditional cavalries were concerned. Their soldiers were also adept at guerrilla warfare, given the terrain. The land being an unsung hero. Interesting. How about the Wu Kingdom? Ah, now they had something unique, their naval strength. Given their location, flanked by the Yangtze River and the Eastern Sea, they capitalized on this. Their navy was second to none, complete with fireships offering unique tactical advantages. So, each kingdom, despite their common roots, developed their unique systems of military prowess, responding to their geographical settings and their strategic needs. What a meticulous design of defense and offense. Absolutely. It illustrates how they adapted, exploited their unique geographical and cultural resources to protect their lands and people. Historical accounts speak volumes about their insightful preparedness and adaptation. It indeed paints a picture of the intricate strategies and the depth of thought that went into building these militaries, doesn't it? And despite these military preparations and showcases of power, it was not always about conflict. There were also peace terms and alliances, weren't there, Ryota? Ah, yes, that's correct. The peace terms between these three kingdoms, although often filled with turbulence, were established to maintain a semblance of balance and coexistence. It's intriguing to think about how these political landscapes were navigated. Can you give us an example? One instance that stands out is the famous Sun Liu Alliance. It was a pact between Sun Quan of Wu and Liu Bei of Shu. A curious outcome considering their previous territorial disputes. It was a tactical move. The alliance was a strategic response to curb the rising dominance of Cao Cao's Wei Kingdom. You can think of it as an early version of a balance of power framework. So, even as they faced internal struggles in their kingdoms, externally they were putting forward unified fronts in the face of common threats. Correct. Showing both foresight and political tact, these peace terms, alliances, and diplomatic maneuverings were pivotal in maintaining coexistence. However fragile and temporary these arrangements were, they provided moments of respite, allowing the kingdoms to prosper and thrive within their boundaries. Each kingdom thus had its unique strengths and its way to strategize for maximum gain. That's an enduring tale of human resilience and ambition, isn't it? Indeed, Aubrey. It's a theme that echoes through the annals of history. When survival is at stake, diplomacy often goes hand-in-hand hand with martial might. So, after exploring peace terms and alliances, a vital aspect to understand is the delicately balanced dynamics that prevailed across the kingdoms. The coexistence of the three kingdoms was a careful dance around power, resources, and strategic dominance. It's interesting to think of it as a dance. What controlled the rhythm of this dance? The rhythm or pace of the dance was driven by a confluence of external pressures and internal strife. Imagine balancing on a tightrope, with every movement carrying significant ripple effects on the geopolitical landscape. That's vivid imagery, Ryota. It must have required immense strategic genius to maintain such a balance. Absolutely, Aubrey. The leaders of the kingdoms displayed a profound understanding of knowledge is power, 
exploiting knowledge of territorial advantages, their opponents' weaknesses, and diplomatic relations, they carefully navigated this complex matrix of power. So it wasn't just about martial might, but also discernment and wisdom. Could you give us an instance demonstrating this? Certainly. A perfect example is how Liu Bei, despite his kingdom, Shu, being geographically disadvantaged, with both Wei and Wu on its borders, still maintained his kingdom's integrity. He did this through tactical alliances, like the Sun Liu Alliance, and manipulative diplomacy, all while enhancing Shu's military capabilities. A masterstroke of strategic acumen. This balance of power wasn't just a static in these kingdoms, was it? No, it wasn't. It was a variable dynamic, continuously adjusted according to changing circumstances. This fragile equilibrium is what made the era of the Three Kingdoms an episode of complex intrigues and breathtaking grand strategy. Diving deeper, let's now discuss the complex diplomatic endeavors maintained by the kingdoms and their impact on inter-kingdom relations. History shows us diplomacy can sometimes be more powerful than the mightiest of armies. That's a crucial point, Aubrey. An apt example of diplomatic endeavors can be observed during the marriage alliance between Sun Quan, the ruler of the Kingdom of Wu, and Liu Bei, the ruler of the Kingdom of Shu. This move was essentially a diplomatic strategy to form a unified front against their common threat, Cao Cao. Oh, a classic case of an enemy of my enemy is my friend. But didn't they have their own differences? Certainly the kingdoms were not without their differences and conflicts, but these marriage alliances, a common diplomatic tool, forged bonds that in times of adversary offered a united front. Moreover, such unions also brought about cultural exchanges between the kingdoms, influencing their art, music, and even culinary practices. Fascinating how these diplomatic maneuvers had such significant and lasting impacts on the culture of these kingdoms. Indeed, Enhanced transportation and communication networks instituted as a part of these diplomatic endeavors also fostered better interkingdom relations, trade, and cultural exchanges. And pairing these diplomatic endeavors with strategic warfare maintained a delicate balance within these kingdoms, didn't they? Yes, Aubrey. Essentially, the success of these diplomatic endeavors was a balancing act of maintaining harmony internally while strategizing defense against external threats. It's such a layered and fascinating tale of power dynamics, strategic acumen, and human relationships played out in this ancient setting. No wonder the romance of Three Kingdoms continues to captivate audiences. Turning to a reflective note, the era of the Three Kingdoms has left an immense legacy worth deliberating on. Certainly. The echoes of that epic reverberate even now, wrapped in a tapestry of culture, politics, strategic warfare, and diplomatic endeavors. Absolutely. The art of war is laid out in this era. The lessons in strategic planning and diplomacy have not only shaped ancient China's history, but have served as a guiding light even in today's geopolitics. Not only geopolitics, Ryota, but looking from my literary lens, they're also a goldmine for the storytellers. The historical narratives and intricate character developments have inspired countless adaptations, varying from movies, television dramas, operas to video games. Yes, The Romance of Three Kingdoms remains one of China's four great classical novels, and its influence not just limited within China's borders. It has reached far beyond, 
leaving profound imprints on Japanese and Korean literature as well. But it's more than just stories and strategies. The legacy of this era transcends into philosophy, governance, and even architectural designs. The concept of total war policy, for instance, gained prominence during this time and remains relevant even today. Indeed, Aubrey. Also, the mutual respect of the kingdoms and their peace treaties offer lessons on international relations. The tale of these kingdoms, albeit filled with power struggle and warfare, also signifies the possibility of coexistence. The Three Kingdoms era, thus, continues to be a beacon of inspiration, imparting lessons on culture, strategy, diplomacy, and human relations. Which all the more validates how the saga of these three kingdoms isn't merely a golden page from the past. It's a grand narrative where history, culture, politics, and human nature intertwine, echoing its relevance across time and space. To wrap up our discussion, let's circle back to the core of our analysis, the historical significance and relevance of the Three Kingdoms period in today's context. Just as Dickens captured the zeitgeist of the French Revolution in his immortal words, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. The Three Kingdoms was similarly an epoch of contradictions. It was a time of unprecedented chaos and bloodshed, yet, it also saw the emergence of advanced political systems and strategic planning. Yes, a true paradox. That period has served as a canvas for deep examination of leadership styles, military strategy, and diplomacy, which continue to shape policymaking today. Let's not forget the cultural ramifications. The literature, arts, and philosophies birthed during those tumultuous years continue to shape and influence modern Chinese and in broader terms, East Asian society. The narratives of courage, deception, loyalty, and ambition continue to resonate with the human condition even now. Certainly, even within technology, its relevance is evident. AI models are often trained on many of the strategies developed during that time. Business tactics, too, continue to draw inspiration from them. So it's safe to say the ripples of the Three Kingdoms era continue to spread out, centuries after the initial plunge. The story has seeped into the collective consciousness in a way that transcends mere historical appreciation. It is, for lack of a better term, a part of the societal DNA. Well said, Aubrey. The intertwined thread of the three kingdoms remains woven into the fabric of existence, echoing a relevance that withstands the test of time. Indeed, with that, we would like to take a moment and express what lies beyond today's rich examination. We move from the wide lens of kingdoms to the intricate tales of inhabitants, individuals who shaped these kingdoms. Ah! The vibrant personalities that captivated generations, their complexities unfolding layer by layer, much akin to an engrossing novel with each page hinting at unexpected turns. Exactly. Each character, much like strokes on a canvas that together form masterpieces, Academy Award-worthy narratives awaiting unraveling. Consider it like zooming in, focusing on every pixel that constitutes the entire picture. It's the details that refine the narrative. You're completely right, Ryota. From nitty-gritty facets of a noble warlord to the heart-touching struggles of an ordinary soldier, their tales are pivotal in understanding the grand blueprint of those times. And beyond individuals, we will also shed light on some of the prominent events that shaped this saga, 
events that aren't merely historical standpoints, but have become landmarks in the collective psyche. Moments of triumph, defeat, the ebb and flow of the human struggle, all standing testament to the relentless dance between Fateh and free will. So, listeners, do join us as we venture deeper into this labyrinth, as we hear echoes of whispers that time has beautifully preserved, and now deciphers them, one episode at a time. Stay tuned. Our journey across time and across borders concludes for today. We thank you all, our listeners, for joining us on this first venture into the romance of Three Kingdoms, rich in its complex interplay of power dynamics, strategic maneuvers, and human nature. Indeed, a landscape painted not just with the strokes of political strategies and military battles, but delicately shaded with the hues of human emotions, progress, society, and culture, making it as much alive today. The echoes of the past have resonated with us today, a reflection of an extant past that draws us in, only to reveal something, a string of thought, an emotion, or an experience, which is inherently human. Yes, Ryota. It's the unique way in which it resonates with us all, and in that resonance, binds us. We are truly grateful to our listeners for embarking on this journey with us. With each episode, we aim to unravel the intricate tapestry of this time, your enthusiasm and curiosity making it more fulfilling. We cannot wait to dive deeper into the moments that shaped that era, the characters that left an indelible impact, and we invite you back to join us as we continue this adventure. Until then, we leave you with the lingering essence of this fascinating era, and we look forward to your company next time. Thank you all for your time. See you again in our next deep dive into the forgotten chapters of The Three Kingdoms.